the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a uh, delight to bring back uh, to our airwaves someone we visit with almost every Monday to get uh, his read and take on things, and that's Brandon Weichert. Brandon Weichert, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, author and journalist, among other things, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, and Biohacked, China's Race to control life. Brandon, welcome back. I hope you had a good holiday, sir. Oh, I did. I did. We, uh, you know, as you know, introducing a newborn to Thanksgiving and being around other family members and friends. So it's been a real, real blessing to see that. Of course, not getting much sleep, so I don't even know what time it is right now. But, um, you know, it's all good. That's that's wonderful. Thinking? Yes, just wonderful to hear. And, um, I, we're just all, I presume, mother and the rest of the family doing fine, right? Oh, yeah. Everybody's just a lot of sleepless nights, but yeah. that's how it is with a newborn. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let me offer this advice to you on <laughs> sleep. The worst part about being tired is being tired. That's right. Yeah. Yes. You'll get There's through it. There's a reason it. that this is considered torture. Yes, uh, I say, oh, okay, considered you were torture. taking it. Yes, it can be. Sleep deprivation. <laughs> yes. Yes, 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 yes. All right. No water drops for you. <laughs> Although we will talk about the Chinese in a few moments. Yeah. I want to talk about America with you for a second. Yes. I, um, I was on a call earlier today, and people were talking about the hostage exchange, the hostage-prisoner ex- exchange uh, between uh, Gaza, Israel, I guess Qatar's in there. And they were asking my opinion, and I said this, Brandon, and I would love your take. Take it any direction um, you would like. Um, I said I'm, I'm kind of worried about not what it says about Israel right now, but that's obviously a big problem. I'm worried about what it says about America. Um, Thirty... Americans, perhaps more, were killed on October mm-hmm. 7th. Uh, ten or so, perhaps more, were taken hostage by a designated terrorist group. We send two aircraft carrier groups to the region. They can unleash holy hell. And then we start pressuring the victim of the slaughter on October yeah. 7th to return prisoners, prisoners who have been uh, duly detained for engaging in acts of terrorism, who sympathize with Hamas, to release innocents. And that's its own problem. There have now been four tranches, four tranches of released hostages. One of them, one, a single one was American. Yeah, this is intolerable to me. It is intolerable. It, it is intolerable, uh, and largely because this is entirely a making of the current man occupying the White House. 
Um, this is not something that well, – first of all, this terrorist attack would never happen under Donald Trump. It wouldn't happen under any Republican president, period. And I talk about this in my book, The Shadow War, this grotesque relationship between the Democratic Party and the Islamists of the region. Um, and so we need to first acknowledge that. And the second thing we need to then look at is how is it that Thailand was able to get their people back, whereas the sole remaining superpower, so-called, was not able to get any of its people back, and that was with Israel – be the force on the ground being supposedly uh, a conduit for us, at least that's what our enemies say. Um, but of course, Israel has to protect its own interests, and it's up to the U.S. government to protect its interests. And what is the U.S. government under Joe Biden doing? It's pushing Israel away, it's alienating our allies in the wider region, and it's empowering not only Iran, but it's also giving money to Hamas. And so what are the Islamists of the region who are all chauvinists and cultural supremacists, what are they going to take away from this? They're not going to think, oh, boy, the Americans are really, you know, they're really fair players. They've got our back. They're not looking at it this way. They're saying the Americans are weak. The Americans are are proving that we are the superior ones because we are the true believers of the true faith. And so they're going to continuously humiliate us go out of their way to do so. Listen, they're at war with Israel, and they're happily giving away Israeli uh, hostages, but American hostages are the ones being uh, you know, held in place. Why is that? It's because they don't fear the Americans, yep. and they, they know that they have a friend ultimately in the White House. Also, they know that the man in the White House is just a meat puppet for Barack Obama, who's the greatest pro-Hamas pro-Islamist leader of in, in history in America. And so this is, you know, par for the course here. And if, if, I, were, if I were a family member of the American hostages, I would be irate right now yeah. because I would know that the president of the United States is actively undermining not only Israel, but undermining the attempt and the mission to retrieve American hostages. And one other thing, you mentioned those aircraft carriers, Seth. Lee Smith wrote a wonderful essay for Tablet about three or four weeks ago in which he asserted, and I think he's right, that the reason Biden deployed those two aircraft carrier groups, Gerald Ford and the Eisenhower, was not to deter Iran from greater aggression against Israel. It was actually to pressure the Israelis to follow the Biden playbook mm. of surrendering to Hamas mm. and working with Iran. Mm. And I think Lee Smith is correct. Well, it gets worse, and of course, there's a it lot. It, it gets group. worse, and and there's certain things we may not even know. I mean, it is possible that someone knows that these Americans may not be alive, and it's possible they may not be alive. It's right. also possible that if they know this, and they are forcing this prisoner swap for hostages, that. The American people would never tolerate it if they knew Americans were never coming home. Right. Right. Well, and I think also it would be in our best interest, and I know this is not something people want to hear, to just assume in situations like this that the hostages are not alive. I think we have to have that conversation. I do, too. I've had it. I think the Israelis have the Hannibal option for captured soldiers. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think we need to have that option 
And I say this as somebody who could easily be a target of these groups at some point. Uh, I do think that we need to proceed as a nation from the perspective that they're dead already, act accordingly. Um, And that will send a message to the wider region. Again, I I, I again uh, evoke my colleague Lee Smith, who wrote a wonderful book in 2011 called The Strong Horse. And it was kind of this interesting cultural, historical, and psychological assessment of the Middle Eastern mind, Mm -hmm. the mindset that dominates. And what he found is the worst thing you could appear if you're operating in that region, whether you're another nation in that region or if you're a country like America that has to operate in that region from afar, the worst thing to be perceived by the people in that region is either weak and or incompetent. Mm -hmm. Because then they're inherently, because of the cultural mindset, of the region, they're going to then try to push you out and push you around just because that's how they operate. It's a very tribalistic mindset. And so my concern is, especially under Biden, we are perceived as both incompetent and weak. And this goes back to that image of those planes fleeing Afghanistan Mm -hmm. in the dead of night Mm -hmm. with everything falling apart around us after 20 years. That happened under Biden. The world knows that Joe Biden is not the president to lead America to greatness. He's the president that will lead America into folly, disaster, and destruction, and he is around the world. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. I'll come back to the Hannibal uh, directive or option in a moment, if you'll remind me. But let's just talk about that, because it's part and parcel of what I'm talking about. It seems like we are hanging a kick-me sign on our back right now. You know, that fling of Afghanistan was reminiscent of the fling of Saigon in 1975, um, an ignominious, embarrassing retreat from uh, what otherwise would have been a third world country taking on um, the world superpower America in the cause against um, in the cause against communism. And for uh, 20 years after that, we had the Vietnam syndrome. Uh, in this country that uh, was um, that was altered by the first Gulf War, I think. Fair enough. Yes. Fair enough. Yes. Let me take a commercial break and yes. pick up this story, because in the snap of a finger, it seems to me Joe Biden did all that unlearning for us. Um, let me pick up on that with you when we come right back. Brandon Weikert is my guest. He and I will be right back. All right. We can lose this song. For the eighth time, Mr. Dahl, we can lose this song. We don't want America it. We don't want it anymore. It's 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 now gotten to the point of annoying. We need to eliminate it. Put in your Sonny and Cher instead. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson You'll regret Show. regret that. I won't regret it. Brandon Weikert is our guest, author, journalist, uh, political consultant. And we were just talking about um, the state of play with America on the world stage right now. Brandon, I was making the point that we were we were uh, diminished severely after Vietnam. It took something like 20 years to overcome that Vietnam syndrome. Seems to me with the flight from Afghanistan, Joe Biden undid that with the snap of a finger to no to no concern whatsoever. Um State Department and Defense Department spokesman uh bragged about the success of our Afghanistan withdrawal joe biden said it was quote unquote an extraordinary success it led i think to a lot of our other adversaries acting in ways they otherwise might not have specifically putin on ukraine um and specifically uh iran and china 
uh, well, specifically China on a few other fronts, and then Iran and Hamas with regard to Israel, and now, of course, um, with us telling Israel what to do and Americans paying the price once again, as many Americans perhaps still being held hostage or dead as were killed in the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Right. And actually, I would say that the withdrawal in Afghanistan was actually worse from a strategic standpoint than Vietnam ultimately was, because we had a man in the White House when we had begun to draw down. Obviously, he wasn't there at the end. Um, But the the Nixon sort of Ford um, dynamic, they viewed Vietnam as, you know, it was a, a... a loss, but they were able to prevent that loss from becoming a strategic failure in the wider Cold War against the Soviet Union. They were able to continue keeping America in that fight, which was much more important than the Vietnam fight. And in fact, they were able to prevent, in many respects, the spread of communism. Uh, Remember, there was the concern that from Vietnam it would go everywhere into Asia, and it was relatively contained to the greater Indochina uh, region and that was a that was directly because of the man in the White House at the time, Richard Nixon, and his successor Gerald Ford. Unfortunately, we have a man in the White House today who not only masterminded the disastrous pullout of Afghanistan, but has masterminded and presided over every single subsequent failure. And they are all connected. Um, this isn't something unconnected. I know that people in D.C. hate when I talk like this because they don't understand the world. They're, they, they're living way too far removed from everything. Well, they're very siloed in their areas of expertise, they and are. they think each they country are. is its own thing. Right. They are exactly right. Exactly right. And I would, I would also caution your audience. I warned about this in April or May uh, at my column at 1945. Venezuela is getting ready to invade Guyana. Yeah. I also would caution your audience, and I've been saying this for the last four months. Yeah. Uh, North Korea, watch out for North Korea. They're getting ready to do something. Yep. These are not happening in a vacuum. These are all being coordinated, and I would argue, on some level, the hidden hand of China can be felt in all of these crises, whether it's Putin and Russia, whether or Ukraine, or whether it's the Middle East situation, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's going to obviously be the China versus Taiwan issue. The Chinese are manipulating this, and they have willing partners, uh, notably Russia, but also Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, and even Turkey to some degree. China is is uh, agitating. They are using chaos as a ladder to climb up to the top of the geopolitical order and to knock the Americans out. And the Americans are too stupid to recognize. I'm talking about our leaders to recognize what's going on. And so we're reacting to all these different crises, playing the equivalent of strategic whack-a-mole. Whereas our enemies are operating increasingly as one unit, pushing us farther and farther out of Eurasia. And the Rimland, uh, you know, Africa and the Middle East, which are some of the most important regions strategically, economically, uh, and also from a mineral standpoint. And they're also now starting to play in our backyard. And we seem to be completely unawares uh, of what's going on. Meanwhile, let me add a few more ingredients to this uh, slowly boiling cauldron now rapidly. Seventy-four attacks on U.S. forces throughout the Middle East in the last month and a half. 74 attacks. Um, this, 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 this level of attack, we're talking Iranian uh, surrogates, we're talking Houthis, uh, this level of attack has not met with anything 
that would discourage it from becoming 84, 94, or 104. Indeed, in weeks right. past, it was 64, 54, and 34. Right. right. Uh, what do we do? Well, the, again, the example is the successful examples are found in the previous Trump administration. What happened was Iran started attacking shipping liners. They started threatening the oil fields uh, at Abqaiq and um, uh, Saudi Arabia. They started uh, cyber attacking us relentlessly. They started to uh, attack our embassy in uh, Iraq. And what did Trump do? He killed their leader, yeah. Kasim Soleimani. Right. Uh, we need to be, and I said this to you before, we need a massively aggressive, much more aggressive drone operation directed against Iran's top military, and I would even say civilian leadership. Imagine the heartache that we could have spared ourselves from if George W. Bush had been so convinced of not only attacking Iraq, but if he had just simply assassinated Saddam and his top ministers, how much of a heartache we could have avoided by avoiding the entire need for an occupation and invasion. We had just assassinated Saddam, if that was what he really wanted to do, uh, George W. Bush. Something similar today, Joe Biden needs to recognize Iran is not our friend. They are not a rational or stable actor, and treating them as such will only induce them to greater threats and violence against us. It is nobody's interest to see that happen. Therefore, the Iranians are not going to check themselves because they don't fear us. The only way you can get them to check themselves is by inducing fear again within them. And that means targeting their top military and even civilian leaders and killing them in gruesome public ways. Well, it gets me just in a weird uh, turn here right back to the... um the Hannibal Directive, and what message is sent by allowing terrorists to be released from prison in order to hand over civilians, um, sometimes uh, civilians, sometimes uh, captured soldiers in a, in a, in a just war from an unjust enemy. It dawns on me that when we do this, we not only create a market for more hostage-taking, but we end up certain with certain kinds of blowback. I would remind the audience that the leader of Hamas in Gaza, uh, uh, Yahya Sinwar, he was in an Israeli prison. He was right. part of a prisoner swap in 2011. Had that not happened, Thank there you. may yes, not be Hamas course. in Gaza. Ayman right. al-Zahiri, the number two of al-Qaeda, was in yep. an Egyptian prison. i got to take a exactly. quick break, but I would love for you to pick up on this when we come right yeah, back. Absolutely. You bet. It doesn't only create a market, an open-air market for hostage-taking. It leads to the strengthening of the terrorist organization and its leadership. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert is my guest, author of several books, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, and Biohacks, China's Race to Control Life. Uh, there are two wrongs that take place in prisoner uh, uh, swaps or uh, prisoner hostage swaps. One of them is the creation of the market to do so. Again, the incentivization of it. But the other is you may be releasing future leaders of your enemy. We did this, by the way, with Gitmo, with Guantanamo Bay. The, uh, the Taliban leadership is now chock full of people we were once holding. 
Um, right. As I said, the number two founder of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the physician, uh, was held in an Egyptian prison, and the current leader of uh, Hamas in Gaza, the current political leader of Hamas in Gaza, uh, Yahya Sinwar, uh, was held in an Israeli prison uh, and uh, released in a, in, a, in, a, in a prisoner's exchange. I think he was part of a thousand for one, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that was the ratio. Israel got one soldier and they got a thousand terrorists. Yeah. Now one of them yeah. runs Gaza. Um, yeah. Go ahead. This is why. Well, this is why I think. This is why I think the Hannibal option should be the the the, 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 the more just thing to do. I agree. And furthermore, you you also missed the most of the the leadership cadre founding members of ISIS were released from Camp right. Bucha but, uh, right. when we right. pulled out of of Iraq right. uh, when Obama. If you remember. The controversy that we're seeing with Biden is a much larger version of the controversy we saw in 2011 mm-hmm. when Obama just pulled out, you know, and, and left Iraq. Not that we should have stayed, but again, the way we left was so sloppy and slapdash, we ended up releasing the founders of ISIS into the wild from Camp Bucha, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, a facility we were running. Now, there was some questionable activities going on in Camp Bucha, but the bottom line is it was in Camp Bucha where former Saddam... Fedayeen and uh, Saddam military uh, leaders who were being held ended up merging and becoming friendly with al-Qaeda in Iraq we were holding there, and they all sort of united against us, and then we released them into the wild, into the Syrian, uh, uh, you know, mess, and uh, the rest is history. So we have a, a tendency to do this, our policies do, and so we would be better served simply refusing to negotiate. Uh, back in the 60s and 70s, that was the official line of the United States government. We do not negotiate with terrorists. And it's not because we don't want to help our people who are captured, but it's because it used to be a previous generation understood the cost of negotiating with terrorists, and of us trying to be fair and negotiate in good faith with an inherently bad actor, of which terrorists always are. The entire sort of modus vivendi of uh, or modus operandi of uh, a terrorist, whether it's Carlos the Jackal or Al-Qaeda or ISIS or the Islamist Republic of Iran, all of these groups are inherently at war with you in a way that is unconventional. So to meet with them on their terms and to think you're going to get equal treatment, everything about them is unequal. They do not want equality because equality will destroy their movement. They need inequality. They need uh, an imbalance of forces, uh, and they need to be able to basically bleed their enemies dry while avoiding getting hit by their enemies themselves. And that is the same way they operate in negotiation, and that is why most of these terrorist organizations end up benefiting greatly uh, from from prisoner swaps and exchanges, far more so than the West ever does. And one wants to kind of paraphrase a little bit of Abraham Lincoln here in saying, are all the laws but one to go unenforced when one thinks about it? Because people may hear this conversation and say, ah, but the laws of war and the Geneva Conventions, but none of the people you recited follow any of them. They broached them first. They broached any number of Geneva articles. By the way, they very well wage war. By the way, they wage war um, in practice. By the way, they engage in terrorism. By who they target. By how they use 
civilians, by how they use civilian outposts, and not a peep has ever said about it. Not that I care that damn much about this stuff, to be honest with you, but I don't know how we lose the moral high ground to fighting those you-know-whats. Yes, and I think the problem, I mean, you're right. So under the Geneva Convention, terrorism is actually illegal. That's right. It's actually something That's you're not right. allowed to do. You're right. You have to identify you yourself. You have to fight have in to uniform. Op- you can't use children. Yes. You can't use and, schools. And also, you can't use I don't hospitals. Remember, I don't remember al-Qaeda or ISIS or even the Islamic Republic of Iran signing on to the Geneva Convention. That's another issue is that how do we enforce something that many of these regimes weren't a party to when the agreements were crafted? And then there's the other issue of, whether you're looking at Iran or Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Hamas or Hezbollah or Russia or China or Venezuela, you pick your country that's uh, in conflict with us, they fundamentally do not consent to our rules and our standards. They fundamentally want to overthrow the American-led international system that has existed since 1945. So why on earth would they even think of playing by our rules? Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Brandon Weikert is our guest. You can follow him on Twitter, X, Twix, uh, at WeTheBrandon. He spells his last name W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. His most recent book, The Shadow War, Ron's Quest for Supremacy. Right, Brandon, you were just making the point before the break that whenever we are lectured to or about fighting terrorists, not even on their terms— but in terms that perhaps we would have fought in uh, previous just wars by almost every moral authority on war, like, let us say, World War II, any time we contemplate fighting that way, we are told, ah, oh, but the, 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 the laws of war and the Geneva Conventions wouldn't allow us to fight that way anymore. But not a peep has ever said about those who have caused the war and the way that they violate standard after law after standard after law, whether they are signatories or not, they carry on with not only legal impunity, they carry on with an oddly journalistic and moralist impunity. And it, it, it seems to me it's a disease of our brain that we think that way. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't – if it had been me, and I think I've said this on your show before, if it had been me, I would have ordered – if I had been in charge of the IDF, I would have – ordered the entire Gaza Strip to be cordoned off. My troops would have stayed on the perimeter, and I would have leveled every single building in an air war, the likes of which hasn't been seen since Dresden. And I would have destroyed everything, and I would have said they cannot be rebuilt, and that would have forced most of those people living in Gaza to leave, to go back to Egypt and Lebanon and Syria and elsewhere. There are Arab populations that are predominant, and leave, because the problem that we are facing today is Israel is being forced to live with a group of people who not only don't want to live beside Jewish Israelis, they actually, their entire purpose is to destroy the Jews of Israel. And so how can we expect a group of people to live in peace with a neighbor that does not want to be at peace with them? And we, you know, we did this at the end of World War II, where we forced 11 to 15 million Prussians from their ancestral homes in uh, what is now Poland, and we forced them to move to Western Germany and Western Europe. And it was, cons- and then nobody complained about it at the time, and it was awful what happened to those people. But ultimately, they and their descendants were better off in the long run because they lived in relative freedom 
Uh, whereas if they had stayed in Prussia, they would have had to live under the Soviet Union's tyranny. Sudetans, the, the Czechs throughout the Germans, India and Pakistan right. had a wholesale and, and, exchange. And the nobody, ki- called yes, it, right, nobody called right. it ethnic cleansing, right. and nobody had a problem Jews with it. Jews fleeing then. Yemen in 1948. Right right, 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 right. And so the same thing should be done. It is, it is the most humane thing for all involved right now, because to expect the Jews of Israel to have to live the way they're being forced to live with a group of people, 2.5 million in Gaza, most of whom hate them, is ridiculous. They can never feel safe. And the the Arabs in in Gaza clearly don't want to live where they're living. So for goodness sakes, the international community, instead of pressuring Israel not to defend itself, they should be pressuring the Gazans and all of the surrounding Arab countries, take these people back. Take them back. They, They would be better off living among fellow Arabs in Arab countries. Israel has one little tiny strip of land. Why do the Arabs need to be there? They can move. And, of course, when I'm saying this, I'm probably going to get canceled for saying this, but it's the most sensible and, I think, humane option, and it's the option we exercise, the Allies, at the end of the Second World War with multiple populations, and most of those populations in the long run were better off. You know, this has been uh, discussed ever really since 1948, Um, and the odd thing is it raises the question, why are there even refugee camps, for example? Exactly. It, you know, we talk about refugee refugees from what war? Nineteen forty-eight. There are yep. still refugee camps. Are yep. you kidding me? Why well, are there refugee camps? This. None of these countries right. you mentioned want to deal with this. None of them. Right. And Paul Johnson, in his book, A History of the Modern Times, I highly recommend it. He has an entire chapter on the true history of the refugee camps. The fact of the matter is. The Arab armies, when they went to war in 47 and 48 against tiny Israel, they assumed they would walk all over the Israelis. So they told the Arabs of the Palestinian territories, go to these refugee camps, they'll be temporary, we're going to wipe the Israelis out, and then you can move back in and take all your land. Turns out the Israelis had a lot more fight in them than they realized. And now those, those Arabs living in the refugee camps three and four generations later, they won't let go of the dream of murdering the Jews and kicking them out. And so... That is what you're up against, and it doesn't make any sense to me why we're sobbing over Palestinian Arabs who clearly are committed to the destruction and genocide of an entire people, their next-door neighbors. Instead, it should be the international community led by the United States saying to those Arabs in Palestine, you need to now move. We will help you move, but you need to move. This is ridiculous. You have all these countries around you. Everybody would be better off. Just move next door. And that means pressuring Egypt. That means pressuring Syria, pressuring Lebanon, all these other countries. They need to go there. But they won't because I think, unfortunately, the international community is led by globalists who all hate Israel because they hate what Israel stands for. It is a direct affront to the globalist ideology. By the way, all of those countries of whom at different points throughout the 1970s and 1980s funded the PLO movement that funded this very situation. Watch a documentary. Watch any documentary you want. I watched an Al Jazeera one. It was pretty good. It was a six-part series from maybe a decade ago. On the uh, on the PLO, I mean, and it's just country after country that you mentioned that supported the PLO with all the arms and all the necessities to engage in this very, very behavior. Maybe they ought to pay the price for that. Maybe they ought to take the I receipts. I agree. And you know what? We can Egypt. Do this in a it way was Iraq. Yeah. Go, you know the yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. We can do this in a way where we don't send them all to Egypt. Obviously, that'd be too much for any one country. But we can help spread out the population flow. And this is a holdover from the end of the Second World War. Our forefathers, unfortunately, 
did not finish the job, and so we're going to have to finish the job. But, of course, under Biden, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. There will never be an American leader with the gumption to force the international community to do what must be done to make peace, true peace in the region. And so we're going to have to live with this. And it's not us that's being killed necessarily. Uh, It's usually Israelis. And so the Israelis, you know, we need to let them defend themselves if we're going to make them live in these conditions. And, of course, we won't even let them do that which is why we now have the crisis we're seeing, where Israel's having to basically kowtow to the terrorists who murdered all of their people uh, on October 7th. It's disgusting, and it's not something that America should ever be okay with, and we seem to be fine with it. Yeah, we, we, assumed, we seem to be just fine with it, especially when it comes to the country Israel. When these other countries were engaging in these mass slaughters, whether it was the Assad's, or whether it was uh, the Husseins of Jordan, or for that matter, whether it was Egypt, the world is awfully silent. Um, it's yep. it's an entirely impossible situation for the Palestinians right now. But it seems to me, as I listen to you, that the smartest thing would be for rather than us and Israel to have to keep paying the price that uh, the brethren who have encouraged this for so long and right. endowed it for so long take up some ownership of the problem they've made. Brandon, it's always good talking to you, my friend. Um, Have a great week, and we'll be in touch. Uh, We'll talk to you next week, if not before. All right. Bye-bye. Bless you. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Portions of this show brought to you by Y-Refi. They have a secure investment. It actually helps people, and at Y-Refi, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's an investment where you are in control with a lot of flexibility. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it. There are absolutely no fees. There is no attack on principle. If you ever need your money back, you'll get your monthly statement. No surprises. It is a secure and collateralized portfolio. And you can check them out by going to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. Folks all over the country are earning a high fixed rate of return with YREFI. They don't care about what happens with the stock market or the Fed because it's not tied to it. And with YREFI, you can do well by doing good. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy or 888-Y-REFI-24 and tell them Seth sent you. Brandon uh, used an interesting phrase I wrote down. I wanted to plumb with him a little bit more. He spoke of our adversaries' cultural supremacies, that our adversaries engage in cultural supremacies, which is to say have no self-doubt about their cause, have no self-doubt about their tactics, because by any means necessary to them means things that we would think abhorrent. But by any means necessary to the ends for which they want to achieve are their cultural supremacies. One does not have to be a supremacist of any kind to still have something called faith in your cause or some level of patriotism that gives you a view gives you a positive view of your own country and its cause. If you missed my um, monologue this morning, much of it is dedicated to that very point. 
we are, while our enemies who believe in their cultural supremacy have no self-doubt, have no doubt whatsoever about their cause and their rightness and righteousness, we are chock full of it. We are over the brim with self-doubt about our own cause. And I lead you again to the end of my monologue, which will be the end of this show. Yesterday, the New York City Council removed a statue of Thomas Jefferson that had been there for over 100 years. Do not expect Yale or Harvard to engage in any renamings, by the way. Do not expect that, for they have no doubt about their cause. For them and the students they produce, it's all about duplicity. Until tomorrow, for David Dahl, Mr. Bill, and the rest of us, I'm Seth Leapson. God bless you, and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.